Hey, it's Jonathan Ammons here, back with another Dirty Spoon Podcast Extra. For the past four days this weekend, Catherine and I have been milling about at Chow Chow, a new culinary event from some of the trendiest names in Asheville's restaurant scene. In addition to three straight days of grand tastings, the festival offered panel discussions, farm dinners, cooking demos, and events hosted by some household names in the food scene. Vivian Howard, Ronnie Lundy, Jose Andres all made appearances. But I have to admit, going into this whole thing, I wasn't sold on it. In fact, I've never been 100% sold on the idea of food festivals to begin with. They mostly just seem like a giant trade show, which aren't generally something I get excited about. I've been to a lot of food festivals, since every town and city seems to have one these days. But each time, as I'm standing in line to receive another generic phyllo cup filled with tomato pie, I realize that nothing I'm eating tells me much about the restaurants at all. And half the time it seems like you've paid a bunch of money to stand in line and eat off an appetizer menu with an okay wine selection. (laughs) I'm also not the biggest fan of standing around in lines for food. That one has never made sense to me. In the past, food festivals were great ways for restaurants, farmers, customers, wine importers, everyone in the industry to connect, mingle, and just have a good time while they networked. But as the culture has evolved, and so many businesses rely on Twitter and Instagram to network with their industry peers both near and far, it seems more like chefs are abandoning the food festival for the pop-up. Pop-ups are super trendy right now and give chefs great opportunities to partner with other chefs, travel, and expand their audiences. They're cheap to put on and considerably easier to organize than a food festival. Not to mention the risk runs much lower when you're feeding 200 people instead of 2,000. It's worth noting too that a good number of Asheville restaurants at Chow Chow did not participate in the last two food and wine festivals. So going into Chow Chow, I wasn't sure what to expect. And I was there to ask that question. Do we really need food festivals anymore? Suffice it to say, I'm pretty sure that I'm wrong about just about all of that. Walking into the gates, the crowds were mellow, the lines were short, and the food quite good. Catherine and I stopped at the Reza's booth for a quick bite. What did we just eat? What did we just eat? We ate, all right, we ate uh, Suspiro Ranch Rabbit. It's prepared hunter style with the most amazing Black Mountain Oyster Mushrooms. And it's topped with a little bit of bacon, the rabbit demi, is what will be haunting my dreams tonight. It's so good. I can't remember um, the last food festival I went to where someone was serving rabbit. I know, I know, because it's, it's such a rich food and it's hot weather right now and I think that yeah. it's, it's just really, it's such a welcoming dish because it's so filling. Like you can serve yeah. a little bit of it and it goes a long way. Yeah, well done, Rezus. That was great. At the end of the big tent, Katie Button and Kurate are hosting a paella station where three massive paella pans, four feet in diameter, simmer away. Jose Andres is cooking today, fresh back from serving more than 100,000 meals, free in Bermuda for victims of the hurricane. I gotta say, I'm pretty sure this is the first time I've ever been served paella by a Nobel Prize nominee. I spot the folks from Sanctuary Vineyards, one of my favorite North Carolina wineries, and go to check out what they're pouring. Yeah, so tell me about what we're drinking here. Uh, We're drinking an orange Viognier from 2017. It's 100% grown in Currituck County, about three miles from the Atlantic Ocean. So it's a coastal grown Viognier, and then it is fermented and macerated on the skins for a month before pressing and aging in neutral barrels. Explain to folks what orange wine is. An orange wine, it can be any number of things, but it typically means a wine with skin contact. 
and uh, typically during fermentation and briefly after. It's going to take time on the skins to develop the tannins of a red wine, but with the aroma and body of a, like a dense white wine. Like a more more beefier rosé. Yeah, we, yeah. Take, we take white grapes and we make them like red wine. That's the playbook for making orange wine. Awesome. Yeah, no, this is killer. Um, how did you guys come to start doing this? Um, I drink a lot of natural wines, and about five years ago, we had a couple of producers in Virginia that, that tried it. They were pioneering it in Virginia, and uh, we take a lot of our cues from Virginia. They're our neighbors and friends, and they've got a lot of success in the wine industry, so we followed them, And but it's an ages-old technique. Yeah. Are you guys the only guys in North Carolina making orange wine? I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know of anybody else. It's been about three years. We have three vintages of, of orange wine. I don't know many other people doing it, but I hope they do. Yeah. Because orange wine's like really trendy stuff right now, too. Yeah, I think it's probably going to fade, but we're going to keep making it. Since we like the wine, we don't care if it sells a lot or a little. We're just going to make it because we love it. Yeah. While most of the dinners and events did, I know tickets for the grand tastings, or as they call them, pickled in the park, did not sell out. So the crowd was quite tame. The longest line seems to be for the paella, which is doled out quickly. Kegged vermouth is poured on the rocks. The lobster trap is shucking oysters. There's even a grilling station with a handful of local chefs grilling an array of meats. On a stage, the podcast Skillet is recording a live episode of their show. People seem to be having a good time. But I'm wondering... How do the chefs feel about all this? One of the reasons I've heard some chefs give for reasons they don't participate in festivals is that it's just sometimes not worth it for them. The amount of product that goes into it all, the extra labor, the waste if the crowd isn't big, the risk of running out if you try to keep things tight. But more importantly, the time it takes. If chefs know that they can show up, cook their food, take time to talk to their guests, meet and greet other chefs and cooks, it could be worth it. But if things aren't organized, if the venues don't have their shit together, that could all fall apart and you wind up wasting money on product for nothing. I find baker Kaylee Laird later at an after party at the salvage station and pick her brain on the subject. Kaylee is the executive pastry chef at Rhubarb, The Rue, and Benet on Eagle, and she cut her teeth under the tutelage of none other than the great Thomas Keller, working at Bouchon in Napa. All right, so Kaylee Laird, tell me why food festivals matter. You've done a lot of these at this point, right? I have. I've done a few, and I've enjoyed them greatly. Um, From the networking perspective, I got to meet a lot of really great chefs, and I've learned a lot from them. Um, In my experience, I've had a lot of, um, as as we were saying, they don't seem relevant anymore. People come in hot and fast, just want the food. They don't really know who they're talking to. They don't care about what they're eating. They just know they bought a ticket, and they're eating and drinking for basically a cheap price and they can get as much as they want um but i was very impressed with chow chow granted my boss helped to build this and he's on the board uh, but they built it in a very different way it is chefs that built this from their perspective and it's very chef driven it's very educational um they brought they spent their time they have worked the festivals they've done the festivals they put a lot of thought and time into it and this festival to me has been very different because it's very educational yeah. I mean, we've hosted a lot of events out of my bake shop, and I've got to be there for a lot of them. And it's been very different in the way that people are very, it's more intimate. It's smaller spaces, smaller groups of people. People care. It's based all about locals, and they spend a lot of time, put a lot of thought yeah. into who they brought in and what they're teaching. Um, I watched John give his demo, and it was about agriculture and the importance of it. 
while also cooking. We watched uh, Jose with Katie not only give a good show, but also spend time to talk about how important it is for chefs to donate their time. And I've watched Katie do a lot of educational bits and put a lot of emotion into it. So this festival's been very different. Do you, like one of the things that I think that is my criticism or my, the thing that I think is kind of the flaw of most food festivals is a lot of the ones I go to seem kind of disorganized and um, chaotic and you spend most of your time putting out fires instead of actually getting to do that networking or partnering or talking? I mean, there's a, there's still some of that. There hasn't been with Chow Chow, but um, there there's a lot of that. And you see a lot of the staff that do a lot, most of that for you. And as a chef, you have to do it on your side too. And sometimes you feel you're pumping out food too fast. You can't spend any time with the guests. Yeah. And, talking to them even to explain what your dish is but that's also kind of the industry right and we have a lot of festivals put the time in to create parties and events that give you the time to spend with people and yeah. be able to go through that I mean this festival but if you're spending so much money to get there and to do it and just to be a part of it that's the part to me that I'm like how is this not hurting restaurants if you if the festival isn't dead on perfect how are you not just wasting your money and time to be there it's I'd, I've never considered, granted it hasn't been my money behind it either, but I've never right. considered any of my time to be a waste because I've gotten enough where, you know, I got to go to Atlanta this year and they gave a really good stipend in return. Um, I was on the advisory board. I volunteered to do the tent events, which a lot of chefs don't want to do because it's the experience. People come in, they just take your food, they don't want to talk to you. I had an email from a woman that she asked me for my cookies that were her uh, fiance's favorite and asked me to overnight them to Atlanta and I happily did and I got to meet her face to face in Atlanta and I took the time and got to talk to her so there is a lot of that but there's also there is time um, could there be more yes there it could be a little bit more organized and less about money at times um, again I haven't felt that with Chow Chow it's been very easy and seamless yeah. uh, there hasn't been a moment where I've felt stressed or pressured or that I haven't had FaceTime. I'm, I've gotten to spend a good amount of time with all the guests and I've run into a lot of people I know and a lot of new people and I've had time to spend with them and educating them on even what I do is so unique yeah. for pastry wise. Um, and I've enjoyed it, but there is a lot of up and ups and downs. There are some festivals that I feel are still very much about profit, Yeah, but they're are also ones still that exist that are about the charity and education. So it's, and I understand your points of it's, um, as we were saying. I'm just here to learn. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there. I appreciate ones that are more educational than they are for profit, um, but they still exist. And I, I don't want to give up hope on all of them. Yeah. Yet, but um, there are some that have some room to grow, and others that I think are still hitting the mark big time. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Skylight Inn and Sam Jones barbecue owner Sam Jones is also here, so I ask him the same question. Well, Jonathan, you know I'm a man that it takes me about 15 or 16 words to get out five. Oh, yeah. That's true Eastern North Carolina. <laughs> uh, I think that's just true North Carolina. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I just did a two-and-a-half-minute intro to that question. My bad. <laughs> that was my fault. Yeah, I was just uh, over-speaking. Not long ago, uh, I published a book this year, which... Is dumb in itself, and 
we have some items on exhibit for the Atlanta History Center, Barbecue Nation is ending this month, and they asked me to do an event, and it was just gonna be me. And I was like, well, that's a bad idea. <laughs> Who's gonna come see me? And there was a hundred some people that showed up, and it was, I mean, pure humbling. And I told the crowd that, I was like, I mean, I couldn't believe that many people because 10 years ago, I was a man that made the coleslaw yeah. at Skylight and nobody cared, including my family. Uh, and so I don't diminish, I think there's chefs and barbecue people, food people in general that just earn or yearn, I, would, I should say, we're not gonna say earn, but yearn to get invited to a festival uh, so they can be exposed and because it doesn't matter what little corner or big market you're in you can be doing the best work in the world if nobody knows about it yeah it's nothing and I say that coming from a family that for five decades got Did up that. every morning yeah. went to work put on hogs and nobody cared about it I wouldn't say nobody cared about it it wouldn't last I mean, that long but what I'm saying yeah. is they ate the food they struggled yeah. my family struggled yeah but it was one little Nat Geo inclusion yeah. that put Skylight on the map years ago. And so fast forward, that was in 1980. Fast forward 25 years, my granddaddy gets out of business uh, due to health. And immediately, we're not making any money. Yeah. And it was based on perception, not reality. And Skylight Inn went for over three years not making any money, struggling, mm. uh, to the point that, you know, now people think about Skylight Inn as this benchmark. An institution. Barbecue place in Eastern North Carolina. It would have been a place spoken of in retrospect yeah. if our property hadn't been paid for. Because three years, almost four years in a row, I looked at my dad and my uncle and was like, yeah, there ain't no profit to split. How did you, you start know, changing we, that? Did you was it coming out to these events? It and wasn't starting me. To do these it things? was an opportunity. Uh, the Southern Foodways line shot a film, and uh, this is in my book because I'm that guy. I don't think you can fully appreciate where you are if you've lost sight of the fact of where you came from. Yeah. Those How, two things, when they get dissected, you you have become a the alien. Yeah. And somebody needs to fact check you that you're not special. Yeah. Because nobody's special. I'm not special. But uh, in 2000, I think it was 2008, SFA shot a film on us. And, you know, Skylight had been blessed with media, 80s and 90s. Shot this film on us. At the time, our smokehouse had burned, our main smokehouse had burned down, and we didn't have the money to build it back. Me and my uncle had torn the roof off ourselves in the afternoons. And when Joe York came and shot the film, you'll see a gentleman wheelbarrowing a pig through this building going to another smokehouse because our walk-in was connected to the one that burned. And there's no roof on this building because we couldn't afford to build it back at that time. Yeah. And so I did, we did that film, no big deal to us. This guy stays with a few days. And then John T asked me to go to Big Apple Barbecue and do a little film screening, a Q&A. SFA was involved with Big Apple Barbecue that year, and I remember walking around at Big Apple Barbecue looking at these guys. Just in New York? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Chris Lilly, 
Pat Martin. It was his first year, and now Pat and I are greatest of friends. But with a disposable camera, and I'm taking pictures of these big rigs and these guys like I was at a rock concert going, Jesus Christ, we've been cooking hogs forever. How, how do you get here? How do you get here? Yeah. And then the fall of that year, John T. reached back out to me and said, would you be willing, like, I'd like, we want to feature you and your trio at that port cornbread coleslaw at an event, Charleston Food and Wine. We're going to do it at Jim Nick's Barbecue. I'd never heard of any of these people. And while I'm talking to him on the phone, and I even said this in my book just to let people know how ignorant I was, I didn't make a note. I didn't write down a date. I didn't write down John T's phone number. I was telling him whatever he needed to know to get off the phone. <laughs> and as time drew near, I was like, somebody from the festival reached out and I went, oh man, I did agree to do that, didn't I? And I was just trying my best to get out of it. And I finally was like, you know what? I told him I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. And I went down there and you talk about nervous. Uh, I might as well have been a Baptist preacher's wife wearing feathers on Sunday morning, just as nervous as I could be. And on the line that night was Donald Wink, Sean Brock, Stephen Trajewski, uh Ryan Pruitt. And in my big old fat redneck cell, <laughs> and I'll never forget them showing this film. And when it got to the part about my grandfather, and, and my grandfather was not the best teacher in the world, but uh, he was a man that you had to respect because he couldn't read or write. He was self-made. And, and I remember standing in there, wow. Mr. Julian Van Winkle was standing about three people behind me. And when it, the part in the film got to think about my grandfather, my eyes swelled up a little bit. And then when that film ended, we were to bring this hog in through the front door. Rodney Scott had done it the first year. Awesome. I'm the second year. And Rodney was just like me 12 months before. Yeah. Just scared to death. And I'll never forget them kicking the front doors of that restaurant open and 170-some people standing on their feet and applauding. And as we're walking through there, I went, man, my family's been cooking hogs for a long time to no applause. Yeah. And it, it blew my mind. And I go back there and I do what I do. And, you know, the event was a success, and the very next night, uh, right across the street at Monza, was when Fatback Collective was born. And it was like one event, led to another. Uh, every year now, when you, the basis of our conversation, I just pulled East North Carolina on you, was about food festivals. Uh, but every year now, I block off the week of Charleston Food and Wine, not because I'm trying to be a baller, not because of any other thing, aside from the fact that that event will always have a special place in my heart because that was a place that I got to walk up to home plate and yeah. hold a bat and swing in a pitch. That was the first time I was ever given that opportunity. Um, and so when you talk about food festivals in general, there's some of them that use the hell out of people. Yeah. And they're trying to use talent to make money or promote themselves or whatever. And in recent years, I'm, I've been used. Yeah. I've been taken advantage of. At the same time, when there's a good cause, uh, 
just next month I'll be at Southern Smoke in Houston. That's a good cause. It helps industry people that falls on hard times. Last year we raised uh, over 400 and some thousand dollars. That was my first year being a part of that. Chris Shepard puts that on. Uh, but 400 and some thousand dollars, that's just for industry people. Yeah. Waiters, bartenders. You that's get in a incredible. car accident, you get sick, and maybe you're an hourly employee and you don't have insurance. You don't have a nest egg. Here's a foundation that goes. You still got a family. We yeah. got your back. That's awesome. We got your back. Uh, I know that I'm talking too long, but I could tell you a story about Southern Smoke last year uh, that made me cry. Um, last year was my first year of Southern Smoke. You mind if I tell it? Go for it. I got all the time in the world. <laughs> Give me that bourbon again. Yeah, I was gonna say that. I heard this story before. It made me cry too. Uh, then it sounds like I need this bourbon. Uh, I've told so many people this, from my family to. Not so much on a main podium, but just so people understand because I feel like time's the most valuable thing we all possess. Only thing you got worth giving away. It's the only thing you can't get back. Yep. If me and Jonathan and Dan had to stop what we're doing tomorrow and go, all right, well, we can't do this anymore, collectively, we could figure something out to make money. We're semi-intelligent right speak for yourself we'd be like well you know I mean we could dig ditches Dan we could do something fair enough we could survive but when you spend a moment of time it's it never returns yeah that moment never comes back and a few years ago and I travel a lot and I have two children and I was thinking like if you're gonna be gone it needs to matter yeah you know if I'm gonna deprive my children proud of my family it's got to matter and so Chris Shepard who is one of the greatest human beings in the world uh, I go out and do Southern Smoke last year and it was there was a host of us uh, some of my some I don't know but Chris Bianco Asher Christensen myself Aaron Franklin Pat Martin Billy Durney uh, it was a, Vivian Howard it was a crowd of us that went and did it and Four hundred some thousand dollars got raised, and before they brought us up on stage to introduce us, this is right after Hurricane Florence, and Chris brought Vivian and I on stage and presented us with a check for ten thousand dollars to help with hurricane relief efforts in eastern North Carolina, because he and his group were very aware that we are embedded in eastern North Carolina and we're going to help the home team. So. We leave this event, and I'm going to St. Simons, Georgia. My buddies with Southern Soul Barbecue do an event called Firebox, which is a very similar thing. It helps hospitality people. The boys with Southern Soul are good as gold. And I walked in the hotel. I sure appreciate all these people hollering. But I walked in the hotel, and after every event, there's an email chain that goes out. It's like, oh, thank you so much. You know, everybody's responding back and forth. And I didn't respond immediately. And I walked into my hotel at St. Simon's, literally. When I dropped my bags, I sat down in a chair at the desk in my room and opened my phone. And when I started scrolling, it said, Please, the subject line said, please read. And it was from the director of Southern Smoke in Texas. And I started reading a story 
And my grandmama always said that if your head leaks, it won't swell. And as I'm reading the story, my head started leaking, and it was coming out of both eyes. And I left Houston, I want to think it was on a Monday. I get to St. Simons, Georgia on a Thursday. So you're talking about a couple days' time. But between then and there, uh, an emergency application had come in to Southern Smoke. And it was this guy's mother. He ran a pizza and chicken wing joint. And he was a guy that he sponsored ball teams. He donated to the fire department. He was your just your anchor restaurant. Yeah. He got in a motorcycle accident. Had had multiple brain surgeries. And his insurance apparently wasn't that great. And they weren't gonna give him the rehabilitation care that he needed. Essentially they were kicking him out of the rehab he needed to go to whatever his insurance would provide. And his mother reaches out to Southern Smoke, submits and merch the application, and they needed $100,000. And this lady was essentially begging and pleading, like, look, I'll sell my house, we'll sell the business, we can do whatever, however, there's no time. Like, time is of the essence. And this email went on to talk about how Chris delivered a check hundred thousand dollars from Southern Smoke to this man's family and I'm standing in the I think it's now called like the H2 the Hilton whatever and boy and I am just and my eye like the water's pouring off of my big old redneck head and as I'm reading this email I was like you know what that's the kind of things we should give our time to yeah that's the things that make an impact. That was a true impact on somebody. Mm-hmm. And so at that point in time, and there's a bunch of my friends that uh, we hang out and we talk in the food community, that at this point I feel like I need either a financial or an emotional return. Yeah. If I'm gonna go spend my time. So you're pretty picky about where you go. Yeah, and so like uh, this event, Katie reached out about and this event will grow it will continue and it is my hope that it'll do an impact it'll make some good in this area Uh, but either and this is going to sound very very shallow but either I need to get paid yeah or I need to believe in a cause yeah and if I can't do one of those two I'll stay home and ride my girls around on the farm right and I'll let that be my emotional return. That was Sam Jones of Skylight Inn Barbecue, one of the pillars of the Eastern Carolina Q tradition, with his long-winded Carolina answer to the question of whether or not the food festival is still relevant. And the other guy in the background there, that was Dan Latimer. He was the former GM of Husk. But perhaps the most pertinent thoughts I could get on this subject come from Colleen Minton. After all, she runs the Terravita Food Festival in Chapel Hill and has for a decade. And I think it's one of the best food festivals in the country. It's pretty moderately sized and revolves around a series of classrooms and discussion panels. They talk about everything from how climate change is affecting the wine industry to social justice in restaurants and kitchens. There's tastings and demos and a big grand tasting at the end. But the festival revolves around education and it has a diehard following. Nevertheless, 
Colleen announced that this year will be the final year for Terra Vida. She's shutting it down. So surely, if anyone thinks we don't need food festivals anymore, it's going to be her, right? Right? The one who did it perfectly? Well. So I'm coming at it from two different perspectives. It's... I think the answer to that from my perspective is yes, they are relevant. Just because I'm giving Tierra Vida up doesn't mean that they don't have a relevance in the industry. But I do think the relevance comes into play when they choose the right approach and integrate and utilize their community in a way that you, you know you, you just set a good example if if you're creating connections that couldn't be made elsewhere then there's relevance yeah right and if you're creating if you're spurring if you're if you're um best way to say it is that if you are making someone think about their choices and maybe the way they approach things differently, I think there's always relevance for that, you know? I mean, there's, this is just a world... That's I really think, hard to do in a food festival. I think we do it. Yeah. I do think we achieve that. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Yeah. I just think that, like... And I think that that opening, it sounds like it made you think, and who knows how it hit someone else, who potentially doesn't have the same kind of experiences you have or have had. And I think that's, I think that's, so what's interesting about you asking me this question is specifically today, I've never, I shouldn't say never, I rarely get the opportunity to be the guest or the person that doesn't have to conduct logistics of, you know, 16 different events over four days or whatever. So it's not the same for me when I'm in my own festival or in my own event as it is today, as it is right now. So I'm, I'm able to come here and make connections with people that I'm not able to make at my own festival. But what I can observe is that other people can make those connections at my festival and they have and they mm. have made um i was speaking with lyndon smith today and botanist and barrel yeah and he said colleen i don't you know this is why we have to come and do these things because we don't get to meet fonta flora mm-hmm. and we don't get to meet um you know maybe kudu isn't a good example for him but we don't get to meet these people when we're you know behind our desks or you know in the field we you know in the field actually farming we have to have experiences like this that kind of take us out of our normal element and allow us to have sort of a a more social environment to be able to make the relationships that then carry the businesses into a different place which is the purpose of a trade show like when i used to work in the music industry and there's the national audio music merchandisers convention nam Mm -hmm. we used to always joke that every morning when you wake up when you work for for a company like moog who i work with you wake up and it's like apocalypse now. Nam, <laughs> you know. Like, yeah. But uh, yeah, those are purely just networking opportunities. My question is like, for the public, like yeah. I understand the value of these things for the restaurants, the brewers, the distillers, for networking opportunities. Mm-hmm. For the public, is it useful? Well, for the public, whether it's useful or not, the public has to be involved in order to finance 
a right, festival but that's what to I'm create asking. the opportunities for you know these organizations to network honestly I mean that's that is one of the reasons I am giving it up from a financial perspective it is I I am not uh, great at the sponsorship side I'm not great at bringing in the dollars from you know the extended sponsors and therefore I don't have a team because I don't have a big enough budget to have a team so everything I do is I think I do it well but I, you know, I don't have the bandwidth that someone with a team has yeah. to be able to create that experience. And to have a team, you have to have money. And mm-hmm. to have money, you have to have sponsors. And to have sponsors, you have to have an attendance base that they want to market to. Yeah. So there is value in that. And there is a synergy that has to happen. And if you do it well, then it then it doesn't feel like a trade show. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's the goal. Well, that's is, and that's what struck me. That's specifically why I wanted to talk to you about this, because I think you've you found that magic bullet of taking something that is that networking opportunity for bars and restaurants and something that is that... Um, still also a, uh, a public event... Mm-hmm. But that isn't um, generic or stale. With Terravita, it found a avenue that was not just. I guess I think. So my, I wasn't following a model. I That's think. It. Well, I think, and I think my point here is like what made Terravita different for me is that all food festivals were useful to the restaurants. Mm-hmm and the chefs and the distillers as a networking opportunity until we had social media and they could just network outside of that and then they kind of became dinosaurs and fossils. But what made you did that was interesting was you actually made it useful for the attendees. Well, that's an interesting perspective because I think, um, you know, the fact that I've got two teenagers, right? So one of the pieces is that technology is so much a part of their lives that it's second nature. But I think it's also so important to incorporate real life relationships and engaging in a completely different way beyond technology that's equally if not more important. And I think that that's the piece of it, you kind of hit on that, in that you know, we have social media now, what's the relevance um, well, I would say that the relevance is that that touch and feel and being able to give someone, you know, a hug or a fist bump or and talking to them and putting, you know, yourself in front of them and connecting with them in a different way than you can on technology is yeah. really, really important. Yeah. Why 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 is Terravita in it? Um well, a lot of reasons. I mean, there are some personal reasons that are health-related that both, you know, I was speaking to someone today. There's a vulnerability that goes hand-in-hand hand with running your own business and then being sort of a singular person. I wish that I had done a better job of the sponsorship piece and been able to build a team that could then, you know essentially if something were to happen to me they could carry on right but I I haven't had the financial um, 
I mean, I do fine. And all of our bills are paid. And I've always been a good business person. So I've always, you know, broken even or plus. But for the amount of time I put in, I need to be able to do a little bit better than that, Actually right? profit? Yeah. 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 And so I, I do, but not, not greatly, right? So, and if I did, then I would be able to hire a team. And I don't have a team that I can hire. I do have some freelance folks that, or, you know, contractors that do various things like social media and writing and some PR stuff. But I can't afford to hire them as, like, full-time staff people or even part-time staff people. So, therefore, the kind of knowledge transfer and information that someone would need to have to be able to carry on if something were to happen to me, um, it's not there. Yeah. And so because of that vulnerability and because I do have my personal finances tied into the success of this, I feel like as I'm getting older, that's just something that I'm not as willing to continue to put out there. You know, my oldest is going to college next year. I had some health issues. I think, you know, Rocky Mountain spotted fever Mm -hmm. and systemic strep, you know, Mm. scarlet fever last year. Um, So those, that was kind of a impact on me and my health, but we're ending on, you know, a high note. It's really nice. It's nice that all the events, except for the Saturday event and the classrooms are completely sold out already and we still have five weeks. So that's kind of nice because it takes a little bit of the stress and pressure off, but, um, it's really not about that. It's it's just the vulnerability, I think, is probably the biggest yeah. piece. Yeah. Awesome. What did you think of Chow Chow? Well, I mean, there. I didn't go to the opening. I heard that that was really fantastic. Yeah. And we've just been kind of, you know, on the, like, kind of skirting on the outside. I think they've done a great job for a first year festival. I don't know the inner workings of the politics and all of that so I'm going to speak purely from a guest perspective I think it looks very polished it looks like it's been around for a while and that doesn't surprise me because the directing team has their pros they do a great job Um, so I think they did a good job of that it looked it felt um, you had uh, you have amazing talent that has been sourced and has come to Asheville to kind of come together with the locals and I think that's kind of the best kind of experience is to blend what you have here the talent that you have here with talent from abroad that you can bring in and because I I think the way I always think about it you have to want for your people that are Asheville natives to feel good about what you're doing but then you also the whole point is to, in part, bring in some folks from out of town so that the people that are native here and the businesses that are native to Asheville are getting more business. I think the businesses have to be benefiting from this, but that's that that's necessary. If you're going to put on a shindig like this, then that's part of the, the goal. Incentive. Yes, that's yeah. right. That's the incentive. And I think we'll see, but I mean, I know from my own personal experience, so far, I've I've done that. I've already, you know, patronized three or four different establishments, um, just with product that were not part of the festival. Yeah. So I think that that I hope that they're achieving more of that. I'm sure they are, and that's critical. And then the other piece is the native people that are actually 
from Asheville enjoying and being able to participate in a different way is important too and of course I can't speak to that I don't know how that's going but um, maybe after they see this year that it's polished and professional then there will be that synergy and that yeah. that support you yeah know? Totally. I hope so yeah. that was Colleen Minton the founder of the Terra Vida Food Festival so yeah I think I'm just wrong about all this Perhaps the industry and guests alike get something out of these food festivals after all. After four straight days at Chow Chow, I can tell you I'm pretty delighted to have this one in Asheville. The Dirty Spoon is a production of Dirty Spoon Media. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, handles our website and marketing, etc. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and I'm the editor-in-chief. I edit, record, and produce the show, and I even wrote the music in this episode. Be sure to catch the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour on the first Friday of each month on WPVM in Asheville at 5 p.m. Subscribe to us and rate us wherever you get your podcasts, or head on over to our webpage, dirty-spoon.com, where you can catch up on past episodes, read more stories, and check out the amazing artwork from our illustrators. We'll see you next time on the Dirty Spoon, where we're always bringing you stories from the people who shape what we consume. <laughs>